0: You are listening to season four of Future Ecologies.
1: What I've been told is that the main source, the main lifeblood, the main thing for connecting us was the waterways, was the ocean, was the different straits. And so the whole island was accessed through our canoes. And you don't park your canoe here, travel up the island to the other end, get on another canoe and come back to your canoe. And so this idea of one continuous part of the island and having one name for that whole strip, just, it didn't make sense. It wasn't necessary, it wasn't necessarily helpful. Places like Galliano didn't traditionally have one name for the whole island. It was the waterways that had whole names and then each spot on the island was given to different families or under there their rights and responsibilities for care and use of that area at different times of the year. Each bay, each inlet, each point of the island had its own name, and each name was tied to a different family, a different house, a different community. And through the names and how the names are attached to people's names was how you understood the place. But growing up, the water was a barrier. Traditionally, that wasn't the way it should be water should be the connection.
0: Welcome back. I'm Will, and I'll be your host for this episode. The voice you just heard is Levi Wilson.
1: I'm <laughs> Levi Wilson, and I'm a member of the Giga'at First Nations with strong family connections to the Malcha peoples of what's now known as Penelicate Island. I lived most of my life on Galliano.
0: Galliano. That long, narrow stretch of land in the Salish Sea, sandwiched between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. It's one of many islands here, part of an archipelago known as the Southern Gulf Islands, or, as it continues across the invisible threshold to the United States, the San Juans. Today, just under 1,400 people live here, and people have lived here for a long time.
1: People have been everywhere on this coast since forever ago, since time immemorial is the phrase. Time immemorial meaning time out of mind. Time beyond what we can conceive. People have been here and have shaped so many different parts of our environment around us. Things that we take for granted now are actually constructed. We're meeting today at a place in English known as Montague Harbor, that I have since come to know as Sumnu, which means the encircling place or the enclosed place or something related to that. Uh, It is what some people would call a midden. I call it uh, a manufactured landscape. It is a site where I assume many, many generations of my ancestors have helped cultivate the landscape to promote growth of life, uh, promote safety in the inner harbor, to make this place better over thousands and thousands of years. You can see here where the original part of the line was and then above it have been centuries and centuries and centuries of deposits of various shells other refuse that people call that archaeologists in particular call mid But it's not just a dumping ground This wasn't just we have all this garbage and we need somewhere to put it It was we have all this stuff that can help us turn this environment into something that's more practical, more powerful, more Plentiful for everybody that's coming later. It's that type of mentality that shifts from What do I need to do to get rid of the stuff that I have now to how can I help all of the future generations? All the people that dumped stuff here that that Created this landscape that put these layers and layers and layers across the entirety of what's now the park Would never have benefited from what they were creating. It took centuries after they finished dumping for it to actually turn into the type of Planta environment that is needed. And so it's that long-term, long-care thought that goes into it that um, that has made this place ancestrally so powerful, special, and important. When we say we claim it, we don't have full claim to every square inch of the island. That is a colonial way of thinking that is not the traditional way of thinking. You don't throw a blanket over everything and say, that that's yours. You have different rights and responsibilities in different places. It's part of the seasonal round. And that seasonal round overlaps, where even at different times of the year, different peoples will have connection. That's why. Uh, It's why a place like Galliano can have 37 different First Nations that have some form of claim on the island. And it gets really complicated if you only view the island as one whole thing separate from the other islands around it.
0: So, we're going to talk about what it means to be an island, to be separated and to be connected. To do that, we're going to take a snapshot of how people live here and see what we can learn. From the footprints we make, and the fingerprints we leave behind. From future ecologies, this is an island unto itself. Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Penelicate, Pulwitsum, Lelum Saratineo, and other Halkamenum-speaking peoples, this is future ecologies exploring the shape of our world through ecology, design and sound i won't be hosting this alone by the way mendel is here too
2: hey where's adam
0: well adam is on the other side of the microphone this episode He's going to be a subject, not a host.
2: Okay. Uh, why is that?
0: Well, Adam is a bit close to this story, let's just say.
2: <laughs> okay, okay. He He's part of it. Yeah. We get to talk about it. Yeah. What is it? Wh- what's the story?
0: Well, it's a story about these little microcosms that we call islands.
3: Islands have been the kinds of places where people have learned things about the world that they couldn't learn other ways. I think the most famous example is with Darwin and his finches on the Galapagos.
0: It was those finches and their diversity of beak shapes for different foods on different islands that played a key role in Darwin's theory of natural selection.
3: I didn't grow up on an island. I grew up in suburbia. Galliano feels a lot less isolated than the suburban communities that I grew up in, in many ways. It's connected to all of the other islands in the archipelago we live in and all the other communities
0: around it. And this of course, is Adam.
3: Listeners may recognize my voice. I am the restoration coordinator for the Galliano Conservancy when I am not doing future ecologies, and I guess I'm responsible for this this project.
2: <laughs> Very mysterious. What, what is this project?
0: Well, it's called the One Island, One Earth Project. Very catchy. Yeah, and it's about measuring the ecological footprint of Galliano Island.
2: Okay. Is this the point? where I find out what an ecological footprint is.
0: It is. Okay, so an ecological footprint is the amount of resource-producing land that is needed to support a person, a community, a nation, activity, whatever. It's an area of land that represents what they consume in terms of food and materials, and also what is needed to sequester the carbon dioxide waste that they produce. An ecological footprint is measured in global hectares,
2: what is a global hectare? What is a hectare?
0: Okay, so a hectare is a square. That's 100 meters by 100 meters.
2: Oh, it's metric. Yeah. So what is a global hectare?
0: A global hectare is equivalent to a hectare of land with the average biological productivity in a given year. That is, of primary producers. Plants, in other words. Oh,
2: okay. So a hectare is just, like, an area. Yeah. 10,000 square meters. Yeah. But a, a global hectare is a hectare with some plants on it. Yeah. And the amount of plants is somewhere kind of in the exact middle between like the Gobi Desert and the Amazon? Kinda. Kinda. Yeah. It's like the average productive hectare.
0: Exactly. So, you know, if you're trying to measure your ecological footprint in plain old hectares, you wouldn't really be able to find an answer because it would very much depend on where the hectare was. So using the unit of global hectares kind of removes that problem. Gotcha. So your footprint is the consumptive side of the equation. How much of this average productive area we use on an annual basis to support our lifestyles. The other side of this equation is called (laughs) biocapacity.
2: Wow, we are getting a lot of definitions right off the top. Oh yeah. What is biocapacity?
0: So the most succinct way to put it is that it's the ability of any given area on earth to produce resources that us humans need to live our lives, and also to assimilate our carbon dioxide waste.
2: Just us humans.
0: Yeah. That's actually one of the explicit limitations of the ecological footprinting process it's only concerned with human needs. Okay. So to understand biocapacity, we can kind of use a money metaphor.
2: All right.
0: Imagine an area of land is your bank account. Sure. And then what grows and reproduces on that land every year is the interest. Got it. So you could live without depleting any savings just by gathering that interest and living off that interest every year. But if you withdraw more than you're making on interest every year, Eventually, you're going to run out. So the biocapacity is the interest. It's what regrows every year. And your ecological footprint is how much you take out of the the bank account.
2: Okay, cool. This is making sense.
0: Great. So dealing with these numbers, global hectares of biocapacity, global hectares of ecological footprint, it can start to feel a bit abstract.
2: Right. I mean, I, I have no idea how many global hectares I'm consuming, let alone how many I should be consuming?
0: You're not alone. So to make it a little easier to comprehend, you can convert your footprint to Earth equivalents, or in other words, how many planet Earths we would need if everyone lived the same way as you or your community.
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that is probably more than one Earth for most of us.
0: Oh, yeah. Certainly most of us listening to this podcast right now.
2: So what is a fair share? How many global hectares can my footprint be if I'm shooting for, you know, exactly one Earth?
0: Well, if you take the biocapacity of the entire Earth, which counts all the land in the continental shelves, and divide it by the number of people living on the planet, you get just over 1.5 global hectares per person, at least as of 2021.
2: Oh, interesting. There's There's kind of a nice mnemonic there, right? Like, We're aiming for less than 1.5 degrees of warming relative to pre-industrial levels, and we should also be aiming for 1.5 global hectares per person.
0: Yeah, well, maximum. And on that note, we're currently at uh, 1.2 degrees.
2: Yeah, I guess we're all on one big, finite island. But this whole thing sounds a lot like a concept that I I have heard of, and that is carrying capacity, right? Like we're talking about how many people planet Earth can support. Isn't this kind of the same thing?
4: Carrying capacity is a tool that is more commonly used for animal populations, knowing how much space they need and those types of things. Applying that to humans is, I want to say, impossible. <laughs> Our consumption patterns are so different and so far from each other. Think of what I would use day-to-day compared to a millionaire day-to-day. We can't just create a carrying capacity based on that. This is Michelle Thompson. And I am currently the One Island, One Earth coordinator at
0: the Galliano Conservancy. The goal of the One Island, One Earth project is to do a first-of-its-kind ecological footprinting and biocapacity survey for Galliano. Adam started the project, got the funding, and is kind of the spokesperson. But Michelle basically did all the work on the one island. <laughs> <laughs> the project.
2: I'm familiar with this relationship. Just kidding.
3: Just
0: <laughs>
2: kidding. Adam's a big overachiever.
3: The other point about carrying capacity is it's looking at a given population of animals within a specific area and all of the resources available to them in that area. The thing about people is that we don't rely on the resources just in our local Areas. In fact, oftentimes we hardly rely on any of the resources in our local areas. Galliano Island is an example of a community where people who lived here up until very recently derived a lot of their basic needs from the lands and waters here and now derive very little of them, right? Maybe more so than, than your average city dweller, but uh, that's a big change. And so you can essentially have as many people as you want almost living in an area if you're importing all of their basic needs from elsewhere.
2: Right. Okay, so you're you're outsourcing your biocapacity when you're not using the things that are local, you're you're bringing yeah, them in. Totally. Yeah.
0: And those things that you bring in still show up on your ecological footprint, mm. right? So, ecological footprint and carrying capacity aren't the same thing, but even though they're different, it was that question of do humans even have a carrying capacity that gave rise to the concept of the ecological footprint in the first place.
5: Well, it, it all started with having come to UBC as a wet-behind-the-ears ecologist. I thought I had a lot of answers as to the nature of the growing human dilemma that we you know, we call the environmental crisis.
0: This is Dr. William Reese, Professor Emeritus of Community and Regional Planning at the University of British Columbia.
5: But although I taught and was even the director of the planning school for a number of years, I'm a population ecologist. The Ecological footprint analysis was one of the things that I originated and co-developed with a variety of my students. That's it, that's all you need to know about that.
2: No, wait, I, I wanna know more. Why did they decide to invent the footprint?
5: I kept running up against colleagues who were economists. So, for example, at one point I had given a seminar on the concept of human carrying capacity, the idea that at any given standard of living, the earth or any territory such as Galliano Island can support only so many people. And I was taken aside after that talk by a very senior Canadian resource economist, and what he was arguing was that economics had abolished the concept of carrying capacity. Because, after all, human ingenuity could substitute for nature. Right. This is that whole technocratic kind of argument that
2: we, we adapt and we overcome and we escape those animal limitations.
0: Totally. But William and his students didn't see it that way, so they used footprinting as a way to make a simple point.
5: On Earth today, there are about 12 and a half billion hectares of biologically or ecologically productive land. The human ecological footprint is 20 billion hectares. So we're using the Earth as if it were about 75% larger than it actually is. Well, even a child would ask, how can you use something that isn't there?
2: Oh, it's me, the child.
5: <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. And the answer is because we're depleting accumulated assets. So that as we destroy the soils, as we wreck the tropical forests, as we pollute the oceans, as the dead zones increase, Earth is in effect shrinking. The availability of really useful productive assets is getting smaller, even as the total demand by the human population and growing incomes is getting larger. So...
0: Just because we can't measure carrying capacity for humans in the way that we do for other animals doesn't mean that we don't depend on or have a measurable impact on our environment. We might escape resource limitations at a local or even regional level, but we can't outrun them forever at the planetary level. So that's the ecological footprint in a nutshell.
6: But remember, this episode is also about islands. These little pieces of land surrounded by water, which you can describe as being isolated, but through the water being connected to each other. And I think this in-between, which is not the one and not the other, is just fascinating. This is Dr. Beate Ratter. Yeah, I'm professor of integrated geography at the University of Hamburg in Germany. And I'm dedicated to research coastal areas and small islands. So, Mendel... Will? When you think of an island, what
0: comes to mind?
2: Oh, you know, an, an island is like a hill in the middle of the ocean. Out here, you need to get to it by a ferry, if if you can get to it at all, without your own means. Yeah, they're, they're kind of separated in, in so many different ways. They're separated socially. They're separated physically. They're separated economically. And I think there are just inevitable tensions of being outside the economic nexus, which is the mainland. But also I think that's the reason why many people seek it out. So yeah, that's that's what I think of when I think of islands.
6: Hmm. Well, Pieta has another idea. I think you can have two pictures in your mind. A specific island, which is this definition, uh, a piece of land surrounded by water, and you think that it's definite and it's exact and, and there is a boundary. But if you look closer, there is no real boundary and there is no real limitation because each island population is specifically identified through the connection to other islands or to the mainland.
2: Oh. I mean that that's so much like what Levi was saying at the beginning, right? Like the water is this connective tissue and it's not not so much just these little nuclear conceptions of a piece of land all by itself. Yeah. I I really appreciate that framing.
0: Well, get ready because in her recent book, Bieta makes the case that in a
6: way an island is really a kind of mental construct. For example, an oasis in the desert can be an island. And in the original definition, it's not surrounded by water, it's surrounded by sand, but it's still this concept of islandness. The same comes true for villages in high mountains. So they are not surrounded by waters, but villages in the high mountains are some way isolated from other places, but they need to be connected to other places in order to survive. So the mental construct means that It's a definition which happens in your mind and which is not a geographical definition of an island.
2: We create islandness. Islands don't just exist out there. Yep. That's amazing.
0: We're standing on a mental construct right now. Hmm. And Bieta loves to challenge other stereotypes about islands for one, the idea that people who live
6: there are somehow special. The so-called noble islanders. There is no noble islander, they're just as normal people. They are not behaving better or worse than mainlanders. But small communities, either on islands or on the mainland, have bonds and have close bonds. So yes, if you ask me, there is isolation, but it's relative, and it's not definitely all small islands are isolated. If you think in the Pacific region, for example, the people in former times, they learned to travel by sea and they connected the whole area. It's this understanding of we are a sea of islands. And I think that explains it very much that you do not necessarily be isolated or feel isolated if you have the means to be connected and if you have your lifestyle to be connected to other places.
0: Besides her knowledge of islands, I'm introducing you to Bieta because of an ecological footprinting
6: project she did in 2009. So I was dreaming of doing such an ecological footprint calculation on a island. Sounds familiar. Yeah,
0: except this was the first time anyone had done such a thing. Because it's not exactly a trivial exercise. The raw data that you need isn't just laying around. So Bieta chose her island carefully. A tiny German community in the
6: North Sea called Helgoland. Many people dream of going once in their life to Helgoland, based on its history and based on its location.
0: Helgoland has a kind of mythic, rugged history in German culture. Today, it's actually got almost the same population as Galliano, around 1,200 people. But it's much, much denser, since the whole island is less than two square kilometers. For centuries, it was known as a pirate's hideaway. Whoa. As a territory, it was officially possessed by Denmark, Britain, and then eventually Germany, and usually put towards tactical military ends. Then, towards the end of World War II, the island was effectively flattened, bombing campaigns. Oh, scary. Yeah. And that's actually part of the reason why Helgoland was an interesting place for Bieta to make the first ecological footprint of an island. It's culturally German, but all the infrastructure is basically brand new. I mean, in European terms, new as of 1950. And that's not the only
6: thing that made it a little more straightforward to study. Helgoland is so small that you have no car traffic. In Helgoland, you walk around or you take a bicycle. You do not need a car. Then we are in temperate climate. You do not need an air condition. And that's not all. Basically, no food is grown on
0: Helgoland. Everything the islanders eat is imported. Their drinking water came from a desalination plant, and their electricity was from a diesel generator.
2: Right. Okay, so... It's about as close to a closed system as you could hope for.
0: Exactly. Although the economy of Helgoland is largely driven by tourism. So, once again, isolated but connected.
2: All right. So, we've got this perfect little demonstration plot for studying the footprint of violence. What what did she find? Was Helgoland like a tiny bastion of sustainability?
6: The footprint in the end, as we calculated, was 6.8 hectares per capita, which is beyond Berlin, way beyond the world. That's 1.1 global hectares more
0: than the average German citizen. In 2009, the people of Helgoland were living like we had almost four Earths of biocapacity.
2: Wow. And that's assuming that all of it is for people. Yes. That we we are entitled to the the total biocapacity of
0: the Earth. Yeah. And at that time, the world average ecological footprint was 2.7 global hectares per person. Or just over one and a half Earths.
2: Islands. Not so idyllic after all.
0: No. But it's a data point, right? A snapshot in time. Because if you want to live more sustainably tomorrow, it's important to look at how you're living right now and where you can improve. Hmm. And so really, This study is the reason why we're talking about islands at all.
3: Yeah, it was looking at Dr. Beate Rader's work on the little island of Helgoland in Germany that sparked it for us here. Okay, so Adam got inspired
2: and borrowed the concept for this island. That's right. And here we are. And here we are. So Helgoland, 6.8 global hectares. And the world average is 2.7. In
0: 2009, yeah.
2: Okay, so thanks to Adam, Michelle, their collaborators. We have some idea where Galliano sits. Where does Galliano sit? What's what's the number?
0: We'll get to that. No! Right after the break. No! <laughs> welcome back i'm will this is mendel Hey. and you're listening to future ecologies today we're talking about ecological footprints we're talking about islands and we're talking about the ecological footprint of galliano island the
2: the numbers (laughs) come on (laughs) give me the results is this hippy dippy island paradise just an illusion you
3: asked for numbers i'm gonna give you some numbers
0: Future Ecology's regular Adam Huggins, wearing his day job hat at the Galliano Conservancy. Drumroll, please.
3: We learned that if every human community in the world had the same footprint as the Galliano Island community does, we'd need the equivalent of 4.3 Earths to support us all. Yikes. If we're speaking the language of global hectares, The Galliano Island community requires an average of 6.8 global hectares per person. In 2021, that is the exact same amount of global hectares that Helgoland required about a decade ago. Huh. That's a, a pretty
2: wild coincidence.
0: It is. And it should be said that since then, the community of Helgoland has made great strides to reduce their footprint and live more sustainably. But for Galliano, the story gets worse. Not only is this a big footprint... It's bigger than what the island could even hypothetically provide.
2: Like, even if it were that mythical island unto itself, it, it still wouldn't be enough. Yeah. Our footprint is smaller
3: than the average Canadian footprint, but larger than the footprint of nearby urban communities like Vancouver and Victoria, and significantly larger than what would be consistent with an equitable and sustainable footprint at a planetary scale, and even for the scale of the island.
2: Wait, just a sec. Before the break, you said that the Helgoland footprint was the equivalent of four Earths, right? Yeah. How can Gallianos be 4.3 Earths if it's exactly the same number of global hectares?
0: Well, you have to remember that these are always snapshots in time. To get that Earth-equivalent number, you take the global hectare per capita of a community and you divide it by the global hectares that are available for every human being on the planet.
3: And, you know, that number changes because the, the human population of the planet is growing. And so if you had the same amount of biocapacity and a growing population, you still have less per person over time.
0: So every year, a single global hectare becomes more valuable in a sense as your fair share of the Earth's biocapacity shrinks
3: and that's because of human population growth but it's also because of environmental degradation right when you're overspending the earth's resources when you're in overshoot you're by definition drawing down that you know biocapital right you're you're liquidating ecosystems and you're reducing the planet's ability to support us
2: Yeesh. overshoot that that kind of says it all
0: yeah it's actually a technical term in the world of ecological footprints there's even a day, Earth Overshoot Day, when the planet as a whole consumes more than its biocapacity for the year.
2: Uh, When is that?
0: We'll be there soon, actually. Uh, Probably before this episode comes out. I think this year it's expected to be at the end of July.
2: But but this question of overpopulation is pretty fraught, right? Like, if you start talking about making policy around birth rates, it's It's easy to see why that's, like, fascistic.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the question quickly becomes who shouldn't be here, as in who shouldn't be alive. And I don't think anybody should have the power to answer that.
2: Me neither. At least, uh, outside of a one-womb radius?
0: Yes. We are pro-bodily autonomy and pro-choice here. Yes. But when it comes to measuring footprints, the math is pretty clear.
5: The ecological footprint of a population is the product of two things. The size of that population multiplied by the average per capita consumption. So in simple arithmetic, they're equivalent. Nobody wants to talk about population growth. It's it's a taboo subject still.
0: Once again, this is Dr. William Rees, who co-invented this whole eco-footprint thing. And to be clear, he's not advocating for any kind of coercive population control but in his opinion, we can't just avoid the problem. Of course, population makes a much bigger difference where the per capita footprint is already high, which basically tracks with wealth.
5: Reducing the population of Canada by 10 would be the equivalent of reducing the population in India by say 60 or some such number. Because the fewer rich people there are, the far better off the planet is in relative terms.
0: But stopping short of eating the rich, oh, okay. <laughs> I would say we don't have that many levers to pull, or at least that I think we want to pull to reduce population in any kind of coordinated way. Instead, I think we need to put our focus on what we can change in this generation.
2: Such as? Like, how can we bring that per capita footprint down?
0: Well, that's exactly the point of doing the measurement, to see where you can make the biggest impact in your community. So let's break down the 4.3 Earths that go into Galliano's footprint. Right off the bat,
3: about 1.4 of those Earths is just the Galliano Island population's fair share of the footprint of the Canadian government. <laughs> so that is like the provinces and the federal government, all the services that they provide healthcare, military, police, the administrative state, all that kind of stuff has a footprint that's already larger. <laughs> one planet if you look at it at a population scale
2: yikes okay so galliano is already an overshoot before we even get to the island just from the services of the state yeah that's not exactly something local communities have any control over though and it's like 40 percent of galliano's whole footprint
0: yeah that definitely falls into the big systems change bucket. But if you look at it in another way, there are almost two-thirds that can be changed just by the way people live their lives. And that brings me to another famous use of the word footprint. So, Mendel. Well? What do you think of when you hear the words carbon footprint?
2: Well, I, I think it's a good rhetorical device to make us feel individually responsible for things that are systemic.
0: Do you know where that term comes from?
2: I, I don't actually, which which came first, the ecological footprint or the carbon footprint?
0: The ecological footprint came first in 1992. William Rees intended it as a way of looking at whole communities and includes carbon, as I mentioned. The personal carbon footprint was invented in 2005 by none other than British Petroleum. BP. Yeah.
2: Biggest. Marine Oil Spill in the History of the World, BP.
0: Yeah, that was Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010.
2: Yeah, well, that tracks.
0: But just a few years earlier, they had coined this term, carbon footprint, as a part of a public relations campaign, which, like you were saying before, puts the responsibility to reduce carbon waste on the individual and masks the responsibility of this large oil company while making it seem like they care about this kind of thing, right? Yeah, like
2: we made it measurable and we made it your problem.
0: Exactly. So you can use footprint measurements in lots of different ways. You can use them to feel individual guilt, blame, or shame. You know, like when billionaires use their private jets to commute across town. But they're just as useful, I think, in showing things that people could do collectively. It really just depends on the framing. So let's get back to Galliano and see what can affect the biggest change.
3: It's stuff like our transportation. Transportation is by far and away the biggest chunk of the community-level footprint, right? The footprint minus the government services.
0: Just looking at the 2.6 Earths in that community-level footprint, transportation accounts for 40% of it, almost half.
2: Okay, so people drive, people fly, and people use the ferry, right? Which should be the priority?
0: It's actually a pretty even split. Each of those counts for about one-third of the transportation footprint.
2: And there's nuance in there, too.
3: We found that Galliano Islanders drive a lot less than people from the surrounding urban communities, but we're ferry dependent. And so the ferries add just a huge chunk on there. So, of course, electrifying the ferries would be a huge deal.
0: And interestingly, while they drive less, Galliano folks are flying almost twice as much as the BC average.
2: Okay, so electrify everything and fly a lot less.
0: Easy. (laughs) Yes, everyone should definitely do that. With the climate crisis as urgent as it is, anytime you can replace fossil fuels with electricity, it's a good thing.
3: If people are weighing whether they should electrify their heating if they're on fossil fuels versus whether they should install solar panels, well, if you can afford to do both, great. But if you can only afford to do one, electrify your heating first, right? We worry about the electrification first and then the source of that renewable energy second.
0: But this is also a great example of the limits of an ecological footprint analysis. Here's Michelle Thompson again. How we get our
4: electricity here in B.C. is from an ecological footprint perspective. I'm going to do air quotes cleaner than if we were to live in Alberta because it's a lot more heavy on on fossil fuel usage for things like electric heating and all that type of stuff. But what it doesn't account for is the damage that dams do in those communities. The disruption of those areas, species that it affects, is not measured within this.
0: Dams and hydropower are low carbon, so they look great on the ecological footprint. But they have lots of other consequences.
2: Can I plug our two-part series on dams from season one?
0: Are those the ones where you pretended to be fish? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh,
2: those are episodes nine and ten. But yeah, dams are bad for salmon. They're bad for estuaries. They're bad for rivers in general.
0: Totally. So these numbers can tell us some things, important things, but... They can't tell us everything. Another big limitation of the ecological footprint is how it considers drinking water. This footprint calculation only counts the infrastructure, the building materials, and like the literal area used up.
3: But for a small rural community where people have individual wells on individual properties, the materials involved in that are, are not very significant. And so it looks like we have no footprint for our water. But... We are using a lot of water as a community on an island that is quite droughty. So we have this conundrum where, you know, the ecological footprint says you should densify your community because you're taking up too much space per person. And on the other hand, we have a lot of communities here where they're already using too much water. And, you know, thankfully, there are technologies such as rainwater harvesting that can help address that. But, you know, there are other considerations that the ecological footprint is blind to, that we have to make as a community.
0: Every island is unique after all. So how can you take this kind of rigid framework and make it right for where you live?
2: I I have no idea.
0: By doing what Beata Ratter calls an ecological fingerprint.
2: Nice. How do you measure a fingerprint?
0: You do not measure. You describe. An ecological fingerprint is exactly what it sounds like. It's the identity of that place, the story, the attitudes and values. And unlike the footprint, there isn't a recipe.
3: There was really no roadmap for it, but we decided that it would be a combination of, of course, surveys of the community, asking questions, basic questions, but also interviewing old timers, elders, indigenous people who've been around a really long time and can remember a lot of the changes that have occurred here. We interviewed people who remember the very first electrification events on the island before there was any public utility or anything like that. You know, Somebody bought a generator that was too large for their own needs and said to their neighbors, well, I'll sell you some power, let's string up some lines. And they would just go out and they built a utility that way. This is back when they were heating the one-room schoolhouse with oil drums. We found people who can remember much farther back than that.
0: That interview with Levi Wilson from the top, it's just one of 23 different interviews that capture the fingerprint of the island. And unsurprisingly, the story of Galliano depends on who you ask. Like anywhere, it's varied and complex. But one event stands out in defining the shape of the island as it is today. What happened? Well, to make a really, really long story short, in the 1970s, this massive forestry company, Macmillan Bloedel...
2: Like Bloedel Conservatory? Where Adam and I visited that stinky flower?
0: The very same. At that time, Macmillan Bloedel literally owned more than half of the land base of Galliano Island.
2: What? Half?
0: Yeah. And they had a lot of goodwill from the community. Not only were there jobs in this regional forestry economy, the company was also bankrolling all sorts of local resources, like the fire department.
2: Huh. And... Kind of like the conservatory in Vancouver.
0: Yeah, you could say that. But then in the late 70s, they decided to liquidate all their forestry holdings on the island. Liquidate? As in harvest all at once. Clear cut.
2: Oh. How did that go down?
0: Not great. But for a few different reasons. Environmentalists were obviously not happy about it. But more significantly, there was backlash from folks who simply thought that clear-cutting was bad long-term timber management. It wasn't that they were against forestry, not at all. They just didn't want the industry to boom and then inevitably bust. Mm. So the community really soured on Macmillan Lodell. There was an attempt to come to a compromise, allowing logging to proceed without resorting to clear-cuts, but it didn't pan out. Huge tracts of the island were logged. Hey. Now, keep in mind that these forests, although they had been owned by McMillan Blodell, they were effectively public spaces. Lots of people would make use of them to harvest firewood or nettles or mushrooms. But after the forests were cleared, the land was sold for private development, and public access was a thing of the past.
2: That sounds heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, for many people it was. It turned out that McMillan Bloedel had been planning to develop their holdings into a Whistler-Blackcomb-style resort on Galliano, which would be, like, a big deal, and kind of adding insult to injury. No kidding. But the islanders got organized. They protected some of the most valuable areas and passed local bylaws to block the development. It uh, got really ugly. There was even a SLAP lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court of BC. But it worked.
2: Right, yeah, I, I don't see a huge Blackcomb resort anywhere around here.
0: No, so all that was left for McMillan Blodell to do was sell their land and leave. But here's where things get complicated. When they sold, they did so with the explicit pretense that the land could be developed by the new owners.
2: Oh, so the people who bought the land were stuck because of those new bylaws.
0: Exactly. And so for a long time, the island community was pretty much split along those lines. You had folks who were frustrated that they couldn't do what they wanted with the land they bought, folks who were gun-shy about any kind of development whatsoever, plus everyone who was displaced by the rapidly shifting resource economy when forestry flamed out. This deadlock is a big part of the reason why Galliano is as spread out and rural as it is today. Which as we know now, has a major impact on its literal footprint, the amount of land that each resident takes up.
2: So that's the fingerprint of Galliano?
0: That's a small but significant part of it. And it will definitely inform what kinds of footprint-reducing strategies might work best here. Because this was not only a formative moment politically, but it also marked a real shift in the islanders' way of life.
3: The people who've lived here until very recently, but extending back to time immemorial, they fished for sustenance and for trade. They hunted deer and other species, including grouse and and black ducks, and they relied on the forest, the resources that were in the forest and in more recent times for timber, right? It's really fishing, hunting, and forestry of various kinds that have been the mainstays of Galliano Island.
0: Some people do still participate in those activities in a small way, but they're no longer the lifeblood of Galliano, as they had been for millennia. Instead, like so many of the Gulf Islands, the economy has become much more centered on tourism.
2: Oh, interesting. You're, you're basically saying that this whole forestry conflict with Macmillan-Blowdell and the threat of development, this was sort of the moment that galvanized people away from relying on what the island provides. There's all this local biocapacity, but no one is using it anymore.
0: Yeah, well, it is being used. Most of Galliano Island's biocapacity is currently engaged in sequestering all the greenhouse gases that we produce as a species. But it is possible to preserve all that carbon storage and still rely more directly on the island's ecosystems. And one of the key recommendations of the footprint
6: analysis is exactly that, the relocalization of the economy. Two keywords, circle economy and regional economy. So think of what you can produce locally and steer the economy locally as well on the island. Yeah? If you have to import timber to do construction on a place where you have timber production possibilities, this is ridiculous. It's absolutely not at all about clear cutting, it's the sustainable management of a forest which is ecologically sound and where you have different age groups of trees and you harvest the timber you need for the construction site. And you need some other trees, some old, old trees. So it's, it's not that beyond a certain age it got to be cut. No, it's the management of a diversified forest.
0: So we definitely should electrify the ferries and electrify our homes and our cars, but I don't think we should ignore the fact that there is a real precedent for a very different kind of sustainable transportation.
3: Uh, It's called the canoe, and (laughs) there is an incredible, rich culture of canoes in this region with Coast Salish and Hul'Kaminem-speaking peoples that is a beautiful example of what today we would call circular economy, right? that trees are stewarded for, for generations until they are large enough to create the kinds of large canoes that are needed for that kind of transportation to be viable. And then those canoes have their life and then eventually they return to the ecosystem. Right? It's a beautiful example of circular economy and extremely efficient in terms of transportation. There's no emissions associated with that. And then you transform the waterways from what they are currently for most of us, which is a barrier between islands that prevents us from getting to visit our neighbors over on the island next door, right? Into the actual channels of transportation.
0: I'm not suggesting that this is a solution for tomorrow. Our civic infrastructure simply isn't designed around canoe travel. And the last monumental cedars were logged off the island decades ago. But look around you. Look at the middens. Look at the Camas Meadows. At these manufactured landscapes. At the work of generation after generation. Not just protecting, but shaping and giving life to the land and sea. Let it remind you that we don't have to do everything. We just have to do our part. So, circling back to the question we started this episode off with, What can we learn from the footprint and the fingerprint of an island? Well, in a way, island communities like this one are amazing illustrations of the paradox of living on Earth circa 2022. Nearly every aspect of life on and off islands is dependent on these complex, interconnected global supply chains and relationships. And at the same time, we're pretty isolated from one another. Each living in our own bubbles. If an island is a state of mind, then maybe those of us who live on the mainland should try it on once in a while to remind us that no one else is gonna do the hard work for us if we want to live more sustainably. But it's also on us to discover how those changes can make our lives better in ways that at first might be hard to imagine. We just have to look around at our community, at its opportunities and challenges, and get to work if you do happen to live on Galliano or somewhere like it you might want to consider the reverse that no island is an island unto itself rather than sitting in isolation and going it alone we have to reforge those connections to stop defining ourselves as an island but instead as a sea
2: Mm -hmm. thank you Will
0: Future Ecologies is an independent production. And although Adam is both part of this podcast and the Galliano Conservancy Association, this episode was not funded by the GCA or any of the grants for the footprint study.
2: So if you liked it, please support us. This podcast is possible because of our community on Patreon. Join us at futureecologies.net slash patrons or hit the link in the show notes where you'll also find a link to the entire footprint and fingerprint analysis for Galliano Island, all 211 pages of it, or, if you prefer, condensed into an emoji-laden, interactive map.
0: This episode was produced by myself, Will Henry.
2: And me, Mendel Skolsky. Will was our intern for this episode, and now that they've graduated from J-School, they're looking for a real job. They were an absolute pleasure to work with, so please, hire them.
0: In this episode, you heard the voices of Levi Wilson, Adam Huggins, Michelle Thompson, William Rees, and Bieta Ratter.
2: And music by Thumbug, Shiitake, Modern Biology, Vellums, and Sunfish, Moon, Light.
0: We also want to thank Tara Tire,
2: Sleight of Hand Sound,
0: Nicholas Friedman,
2: the Sitka Foundation,
0: and the Galliano Conservancy Association.
2: And if I may,
3: I'd like to thank the Vancouver Foundation, Van City, the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions, the Global Footprint Network, the BCIT Center for Eco Cities, CHRM Consulting, and all of our partner organizations on and off Galliano Island. Also, the many, many people who shared information with us, filled out our surveys, sat down for interviews, and provided feedback. Thank you.
2: As usual, we have a ton of citations. You can find those and lots more on our website, futureecologies.net. That's it for this one.
0: Thanks for listening.